0: Hi,
1: I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to The Tom Sumner Show.
2: The following is a public service announcement. Election day is near. Go to the polls and vote. Vote for the Kennedy of your choice, but vote. (laughs) Vote.
3: Hey, good morning everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. Happy Election Day. At least I hope it will be for uh, for most of you. And um, normally at this at this point I would be doing a full-throated uh, uh, plea for people to get out and vote. But most of the people I know have voted already. But uh, we got a great show in store. Plus, you're going to want to join us tomorrow for our uh, weekly uh, political roundtable, Armchair Politics, and see where we're at with the returns. I've been referring to this rather than calling it Election Day, calling it the day we start counting the votes. But we'll see how that all plays out. On the show today, we got coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour a former mayor who channels her inner alien in a uh, very funny book um, called uh, Politics, Police, and Other Earthling Antics, written by, um, let's see, uh, it's um, Mickey Winkler, and I'm I'm trying to remember, oh, she was the mayor of uh, Menlo Park, California. Anyway, um, we also have, uh, returning to the show, uh, SNL and Mad TV alum Jeff Richards, who has uh, launched a new in-character comedy podcast, and he'll be talking about that. Plus, we're going to talk with the um, author of a book called *A Hand Up*. Marty Laurent uh, uses real-world challenges to inform his novel, and uh, it it centers around. Um, a Democratic president and a Republican House speaker who've known each other for years and try to uh, work across the aisle on some of the challenges that they run into. But to start off today, and it seems kind of appropriate for an Election Day edition of the show, I have joining me by phone an award-winning writer and author of a new book called The DNA of Democracy, Richard C. Lyons. Richard, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you Tom. Happy election day
3: and i i'm not i'm what what is the greeting for election day? I guess it's just simply uh vote <laughs> uh,
4: I think it should be let's hope
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, what got you interested in the notion of democracy as a writer? I mean this isn't your first look at democracy um
4: I, I, this book was, yes. It's part of a three-part series. The the second volume is going to be coming up uh, soon, but I wanted to lay down the template uh, for what democracy really is, because it's been infrequent in history, and uh, it, it's a very unique thing. But people really, as I found, you know, I was just talking to friends and other persons, uh, people don't really understand it, where it came from, how it works, why it is unique. Uh, I call, the, I call tyranny the common keep of humanity because it's been so frequent, so omnipresent. It, uh, I mean, all you have to do is work, look around the world today.
3: And it's, it's interesting. We, we think of democracy as being fairly commonplace in the U.S.
4: Uh, yes, I think it's because we're brought up in it uh, rather than having to fight for it or to find it uh look to look at europe there those are many managed what I would call managed democracies. Ours is of another kind or has
3: richard um your connection is uh a a little fuzzy and breaking up a little bit. I'm not sure what you can
4: can you hear me now tom
3: i i can this is better yeah
4: okay great we'll just do that um our, our democracy had different foundations from Europe's democracies. So, you know, though we think of Europe as largely uh, democratic and all of Eastern Europe now, after the fall of the wall, being more democratic, which is true, they're more managed democracies as compared to ours.
3: How do we, <coughs> for the purposes of comparison, how, how are we defining democracy? Are we... <laughs> going back to the Greeks.
4: Well, this yeah, that's that's the point of the book. The book is you know laying out the definition of the DNA, and so from from Israel, going back to the Ten Commandments, uh, comes our idea of law being above all things, even kings or despots. From the Greeks, we have the first uh, really democratic constitutions, where the people are fully involved, uh, each as an individual. Now. Uh, we gain our local style of governance from the Greeks and the demos, whereas, you know, if you're in a community of 5,000 persons, every person in that community has a right to go to the community uh, hearings and assembly and decide local law. At the state level, we're, we're more representative, and that, and that comes from the Romans, where we vote for persons as part of uh, our, our uh, democratic idea, And they go to the state houses, and they represent our interests either in the House or the Senate. And when we get to the federal government, it again is a republic, but it also has overlaid that, the idea of a federation. And the federation actually comes from the uh, native Iroquois League, uh, which the Europeans encountered when they came to North America. Um, And then over all that, uh, we have the idea of British common law and British common rights. Of each individual, so each individual is prone to the same law, even the king. Uh, So it, we have a mixed constitution of all those elements. Is
3: there, is there a force at work, a natural tendency? It it seems to me democracy as is at its purest when it's small.
4: Uh, Yeah, that's the democratic notion, and that was the the problem of the Federalist Papers. How do you expand? on a democracy by making it a republic and and what uh... at what level of government do you repose the powers that are most important in our original constitution those powers were given to the localities and persons only gave the federal government uh, what powers they chose we have seen increasingly in the last hundred years that the government's growing at a exponential rate and taking powers unto itself that's what's becoming different all power tends to concentrate And our federal government is doing that.
3: And and I guess what I'm saying is, is that historically the natural order?
4: Uh, The natural order, uh, to my view, if you take history as the example, and it's the only example we have, of course, uh, tyranny is the nature of humanity. Uh, One person and their family and their friends get together and... uh, dictate their will upon a people. Democracy is the absolute inverse of that. It's where everybody decides they're not going to, everybody has equal rights and there is no tyrant.
3: And, and yet we continue even in democratic forms of government to try to select people to play the role of the tyrant.
4: We we tend to it is a tendency of human nature I think to want one person to deal with everything and it's not ourselves uh, I think that is I think that is something in human nature where you have a crisis certainly when when a country is at war uh, you want the captain to steer the ship and you want to put you know you rely on the captain and you want to you know sit behind the sails and just watch him go uh, democracy again it's the inverse of that it's everybody. You know, pulling at the oars and and uh, uh, making the ship move as a collective community
3: is—is is America a democracy?
4: At its well, that's aspirational. It's always, I think, aspirational. In uh, at the local level, it it should be democracy. That's where uh, you in Flint, Michigan, Tom would go to the local assembly and decide: Do we really want uh, to? Build this development off the highway over here. We, we rather like the town the way it is. Should we have more, or should we start charging for parking spaces or not? I mean, that seems, you know, very small potatoes, but it's very fundamental, and everybody in the community has a right to go to the assembly and, and speak their minds. When you get to larger populations and larger frameworks, you lose democracy, pure democracy, in favor of uh, representative government or Republican government.
3: Um, Richard, I have to take a break here in a minute, sure. and and uh, I wanna I wanna talk some more about this. Um, uh, can you stick around for a few minutes? And of no course. Okay, we'll Boy, dig down. S- okay, Tom. Thanks.
4: Uh,
3: okay, uh, my guest is uh, Richard Lyons. He is the author of the DNA of Democracy. We're gonna talk some more about that. But first, we have we uh, we're going to let our broadcast partners at WFOV 92.1 FM, our voices radio in Flint, squeeze a few words in edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't, uh, don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. We'll have more with Richard Lyons, author of The DNA of Democracy, when we... Uh, when we return from the break, so stay tuned.
4: Hello, out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger, T I double G, that spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner's program on account
1: of because he's so bouncy. <laughs>
0: Brought to you by America. The Ad Council.
6: your children
5: have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get togethers with virtual play dates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council.
3: Your calls matter. Join me and Andrea weekdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern to talk about whatever you want to talk about. The Tom Sumner Program has open phone lines Monday through Friday to hear from you. How's 2020 working out for you so far? How about those damn roads? Call in live at 810-339-8255. It's all about you. We'll be streaming live at TomSumnerProgram.com and simulcast on WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint. Foil hats are optional. You thought
1: you had every Elvis
6: record made, but wait, Elvis sings again. This time, from heaven. That's right, Elvis from heaven.
3: Yes, hear Elvis from Graceland in the Sky. Soul-stirring versions of epic proportions. You'll hear Elvis crooning Pearly Gate Rock. All dug up. Lying in the chapel and eleven others. This record also includes a special Elvis message. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Elvis Presley. Order before midnight tonight and receive this Elvis Presley commemorative casket keychain. Open it up. Yes,
6: the king inside.
3: A must for any Elvis fan. Order yours today.
6: To order
4: your Elvis from Heaven, send 995 in check or money order to Elvis from Heaven, P.O. Box 714, Cleo, Michigan 44487, or save COD charges and phone 555-5554. Use Master Charge or Visa. Canadian residents add three dollars.
1: Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at Swiftlet.technology. The TomSumner Program.com The Tom Sumner
7: program.com.
4: This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
3: And welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is the author of a new book called The DNA of Democracy, Richard C. Lyons. Richard, uh, welcome back, and thanks for sticking around.
4: Oh, I'd love to be here. I'd love to be in Flint, Michigan. <laughs> don't,
3: we, don't we all? Yeah. Um, actually, uh, I, I guess the question I have is we take democracy really for granted in the U.S. How, yeah, rare, I, I, how rare is democracy in, in world history?
4: Well, that's very, uh, that, that's very easy to define. It existed in uh, Athens, Greece, and other uh, city-states of Greece. On a city-state level, you know, where you have 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 citizens, it was never expected to expand beyond that. And it existed there in Greece for a couple of hundred years uh, before it imploded, before the onslaught of uh, uh, King Philip from Macedon. Uh, after that, it, it existed in a representative way in Rome uh, during the years of the Republic. So that would be from 500 or so until uh, Caesar took over in 400 B.C. So, uh, and that's it. After that, it didn't exist anywhere on Earth for the next... Uh, 1,600 years until in England there was the what they call the uh, Glorious Revolution uh, when King William of Orange took office, and he became a constitutional monarch. Uh, but the real power lay with Parliament. So other than that, it hasn't existed. Then it came to America, and uh, we found that there was a, a form of government among, again, the Iroquois tribes, which was based on a democratic uh uh, design, not not as constitutional as you would find the Greeks and Romans, but it existed in the in the Iroquois League and the Cherokee Leagues.
3: And did that inspire the founding fathers, or were they um, piggybacking off the work of, of um, freedom fighters in France and, and
4: Ah, well, they, they were coincident. There was, I go into it in depth in the, in the book because it was very coincident that all the aristocracy of Europe used to go on, started to, with the Renaissance, started to gain interest again in the classical uh, Roman histories and, and Greek histories. And so there was this evolution of scholarly thought in, in Europe, and there were tours taken of Rome and Greece by aristocrats who could afford it. And so they were they were milling through the ruins of Roman Greece and seeing these beautiful statues, and monumental architecture. And at the same time, they were reading about discoverers and trappers in North America, who were seeing a people that seemed to be as as free as the Greeks had ever been. They but they were assimilated in nature. They didn't have monumental uh, uh, architecture or statuaries, but they lived a life that was very free and in tune with. Uh, and so. They, they had the conception of the natural man, that man by nature was free, uh, when when that was opposite to, to the feudal conception, and, and, and so that's what gave us birth.
3: Before we had, you know, um, very concentrated populations, I mean, there have always been big cities uh, around the world, but... Um, you know, just using the U.S. as an example, for a long time it was very agrarian and people didn't interact with other people that much, and it really didn't matter what kind of government there was because a guy just got up and did his work, and you know, it, 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 yeah, very true. Um, the family
4: was the government,
3: and and yeah, and and uh, they were by nature free. Um, so this idea. Is there a link between freedom and democracy?
4: Uh, uh, yes, I think necessarily. Now, yeah, so your government at the start of this country, the government consisted of the family, the association you would make, the associations of business and religion and school. that's how we were different. I call it the American Arch. All those things are what you would call the natural powers of society. Uh, and then they they would form into an assembly at the town level, and that too is very it's very um what from the ground up uh sort of government, not from the top down and that's how America is essentially different. We were created in an inverse direction so that the, each individual had power unto themselves and equal power
3: is democracy um and 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 really, the kind of revolution that we saw in the U.S. Um, back in 1776 is is that the natural um, outcome of of a specific condition? Is there a perfect storm that births democracy?
4: Yeah, in in the book, I go into every every birthing of democracy, and every one of them, and there's, I, I think, four or five different instances in Greece, in Rome, in Israel, uh, and for ourselves, and in England, uh, where there was a crucible of tyranny, where the tyrant uh, tried to overreach, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's something for that to happen. It has to be quite dramatic. Uh, and the people just, just cast off their chains. In America... We had had towns that had their own system of government for hundreds of years, and then all of a sudden the, the Parliament of England and the king tried to impose their will at the local level in America, and, and the, the citizens of America would not have it. They were more loyal to their town, to their fellow countrymen, uh, than they were to England. And so you had, uh, you know, tax police and impositions and the British Army trying to put their uh, boot down on the neck of America. And this is what I call in the book uh, the the, revol- the um, colonial noose. The, the British were trying to impose an absolute rule on a people who had ruled themselves for hundreds of years, and had as their example the rebellious American Indians who didn't listen to any law at all.
3: And when that... I, I, I'm... Trying to circle back to something you said in the last segment, uh, Richard. Yeah. We were talking about um, how, at different stages of government, using the U.S. as a model, um, that you know, it, in the in towns and villages and cities, that there's a, a very grassroots. Uh, version of democracy and then it it becomes a little more representative at the state level and then when we get to the federal level it's much more of a republic than a democracy with representative government and that's and that's actually built in by design but that the federal government has been um, uh, attracting and, and, and Usurping powers that weren't given to them initially and becoming much more powerful um, is is that yeah. something that it, because of all of the uh, violent um, reactions we've seen in the in the political uh, vitriol that's been going on, are we approaching a moment where Something's got to give.
4: Um, I, you're dead on, uh, Tom, in your, in your description of what's going on. And it is the subject of uh, what is volume two of this series of books. And that is that since the time of Woodrow Wilson, there has been an administrative state growing in Washington, D.C. And it is composed of bureaucrats who now, through regulation, create more administrative law than we have Representative law. And so, what we're finding today is that uh, the forces of the, administ- the power of the administrative government is somewhat at war with the representative government because they don't like their powers uh, taken from them, abridged, redefined. And, and the, administrate- the administrative state has been growing for, again, 100 years and uh, taking upon itself more and more power, and that in league with the judiciary that they like to guard their, what I call, left or right flank. Where the administrative uh, state goes, they have the judiciary rubber stamp their decisions. So we have, we have actually two governments now. We have one representative and one that's administrative. And, and that, was not, that was never designed in the Constitution, and so there's so much more power in the executive office than ever before that it's a tipping point for person's anger. There's just too much power in that office
3: and and there's um i've I've talked to some people <clears throat> we've heard so much rhetoric from President Trump eh, all the way back to his two thousand and sixteen campaign about draining the swamp and the deep state and and there are a lot of people who talk about that administrative power having reached almost conspiratorial levels and Yet, I've talked to people who've worked in that system who say these are, you know, public servants that, that go to work every day and make sure that the trains run on time. Um, yeah. Where, yeah. Where, do we, where do we draw a line? Well,
4: that, that's up to all of us, isn't it, as citizens? But I would recommend that, you know, we not hire to the federal government persons only from the northeast. We don't hire them to lifetime appointments. I think they should be, you know, every year 10% of the administrative state should be uh, cashiered out and 10% brought in from all over the country. That's, you know, that's a solution. I think every power now vested in the administrative state, it ought to be questioned whether it should belong at the state level or the local level. It just, we need to go back to an idea where we all have a voice rather than uh, one party or another party having a voice. Should be the citizens, not just party rule. And
3: how, do, how does that how does that happen in a in a civilized way?
4: Uh, that's a that's a good question. <laughs> <ought to> be, <laughs> that's a great question. You're talking about people's livelihoods and 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 uh, you know, uh, so you have to you have to have a big discussion on that. I think. I think every Every power that can be devolved back to the states ought to be devolved back. And let's, let's get this administrative state under control, doing what it should be doing. As you said, there's a, there's a great cause in making the trains run on time. But there's some things, I think, that the administrative state has taken upon itself that tend more to tyranny than democracy. So we're at a Y in the road, I think. And that's why Trump, right, he's right in the center of that Y, you know, right where the roads diverge. And he's the one pointing out, geez, there's this administrative state that's going crazy. Uh, and he's right at the point in that why, where we have to decide which way we're going to go.
3: But is is a, an outlier like Donald Trump um, better equipped to reorganize an administrative state than somebody who has been part of it, like a Joe Biden, and and I'm not trying to say which one do you think should win the election today, but, um, you know, we're we're looking at somebody who who promotes himself as an outlier and not a politician, and then somebody who clearly is a politician and a lifelong politician. Uh, Is there, do you have a sense for if one or the other is, is better equipped to do that, or is this something that should really be handled in Congress?
4: I think it would have to be handled in Congress, but it would be something that would occur over 25 years as the administrative state has grown over 100. I think uh, what President Trump is and why he riles so many people up and why he's got so many people so angry is he has illuminated the problem he has been the doctor who has said, wait a minute, there's a disease here that needs curing. Now, whether he is the curative or just the illuminator of the disease is a, is a good question. Uh, but it will take a national effort. Uh, I think he's going to expose, Trump will expose the administrative state for what it is. And I think it will be up to gener- a generation of people after uh, to decide whether we want the administrative State to be controlled, or whether the administrative state will control us. And it's a real why in the road.
3: And how much of that, um, that growth of the administrative state um, was generated by the White House itself?
4: Well, when we go back, and this is what again what Volume 2 is about, it's going to be called Shadows of the Acropolis, because these are shadows on our democracy. And it started with Woodrow Wilson, who believed in, in uh, the German state ideal of a party uh, creating an administrative state of technicians who administrate from one central, uh, one central city the whole of a nation. That is absolutely the opposite of the way our country was founded. But when you go and my, my second volume goes into Woodrow Wilson, and then we go to uh, FDR, and FDR was responsible for a proliferation of agencies that you're taking in the income tax into a central city and disposing of that money and redistribution efforts and having talents in every state and local government from the federal government. And, again, that's the inverse of uh, the way we were first designed. So there's a real decision to be made, to be made whether we more adhere to original principle now or whether we create some it's a hybrid now of a managed democracy.
3: But we uh, see that, that even we see that even at the at the local level where um yeah. things have become uh so highly technical. Um you know, I always compare it to um you know, we we have to go to somebody to prepare our taxes because we can't make any sense out of it. And and When we are the ones that become candidates and elected to city councils and so on, we don't necessarily know anything about building codes or, um, you know, asbestos mitigation. We have to have some technocrats that, you know, that, that work for us to do those things. And, well, and the
4: ideal under Wilson was that they would be disinterested people. they would not have an interest in their own self-interest as above that of the citizen uh, but that I, I find that against human nature that doesn't work uh, but uh, must a, must the people be informed and educated of course, and do they need technicians of course
3: and so there there needs to be some some allowance or or some way of maintaining oversight of that as opposed to letting those those people then become you know the 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 ones who are making the regulations
4: yeah it shouldn't be esoteric it should be absolutely open but as we found for the last several years you know when you talk about esoteric uh, the, the uh, intelligence agencies of America have been very esoteric. <laughs> so you, they have their own, they've had their own agenda, at least at the top level, and they're doing whatever they want.
3: Well, and as we've found over time, their own rules.
4: That's exactly right. Now, it, All right, so this goes back, Tom, to the fundamentals of democracy. The, the greatest fundamental is there's one common law, and everybody has common rights. What has been exercised by the intelligence agencies lately is that they are above the law and can't be touched by it. So this is—you see how this is morphed—and
3: <laughs> so that these—and that these laws only apply to American citizens.
4: No, the, the laws that they would dictate apply to those they want to uh, disenfranchise. They exercise a law unto themselves these days. Uh, yeah, that's true their opponents. Now, if you're in that job, you're not supposed to have an opponent. You're you're supposed to have one fealty and that's to the constitution and everybody's common rights and to a common law. But it has morphed in the last and and again, Trump has been the illuminary who's lit all this up that we can now see uh, how they're operating. So it's quite a job he's done.
3: Well, and and he's not the he's not the first richard of course. Um, but just the one with the biggest megaphone.
4: Right. It's, it's, he's, he is loud, but then, you know, the image becomes clear.
3: Well, this is fascinating. And this is the first of how many books, Richard?
4: Um, there's going to be, it's a three volume series. So I've got one in the bag, uh, that's on the market, anywhere you want to buy it. Uh, the second one's coming out in the spring called Shadows of the Acropolis. And there'll be another one uh, just before the next presidential election, I plan, uh, that's called Dynamics in Democracy.
3: And what, what got you I- interested in this to begin with?
4: Well, it's kind of funny, but in high school I had an AP class that studied Chicago politics. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that was quite a study.
3: Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I, I, I so joke. I said, well,
4: wait a minute, How did you call that a democracy? How is this working out?
3: <laughs> one of our, our roundtable uh, participants, one of our regulars, is uh, from Illinois, and uh, yeah. whenever we joke about any kind of voter problems, I, I, I always um, joke that he's got a uh, box full of Dewey ballots in the trunk of his car.
4: <laughs> yeah, I grew up in Chicago, and they never have a ballot uh, problem because they just have a question, how many do you need? <laughs> <laughs> and that's been the case now that goes back 75 years now uh in that city so that's that's you talk about atrophied power that's that's where it's at
3: yeah i heard somebody talk about uh the the mayor daly senior um who said uh he might not know how to add or subtract, but he knew how to divide. <laughs> I got to
4: write that down. That's perfect. That's from himself, was it?
3: No, that was um, no, that was actually uh, from a, a Chicago police officer that used to work security for him. Yeah. <laughs> he said that's what people used to say about him. He didn't know how to add or subtract, but he knew how to divide. Uh, I always loved that one. Oh, it's perfect. Well, this is, uh, this is fascinating, Richard. Um, what, what other things have, have you done before this, uh, this series began?
4: I've, I've got a, uh, a screenplay on the market, and I, I did a, a work on War and Peace. Uh, that's a, uh, a more a philosophical, poetical work called, uh, But By the Chance of War, and that's available anywhere you want to buy it.
3: And, and maybe a little shorter? Yeah.
4: Uh, no, it's actually longer. <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh, no. <laughs> but I
4: come from a background, uh, my family was in printing for, uh, several generations and publishing, and, and I took on writing and publishing.
3: Well, Richard, it's, uh, it's a pleasure talking with you, and I wish you all the best with, uh, with the book and uh, everything else you're doing. I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work past, present, and future. Uh, do you have a website?
4: Oh, I do and it's uh richardclyons.com. Perfect. There's there's an adjunct uh, store at lilia.com, it's spelled lyle a.com.
3: Well, thank you so much for spending this time sure. with me this morning. been my pleasure. Well, take been a care.
4: Pleasure. Okay, you too.
3: Bye bye. As was Richard C. Lyons. He is an award-winning author. The new book is "The DNA of Democracy," and uh, we're going to be talking uh, with uh, coming up at the top of the hour. We're going to be uh, joined by phone with uh, Jeff Richards, who is an alum of Saturday Night Live and Mad TV. He has a new in character comedy podcast, and we'll tell—it's called the Jeff Richards Show—and we'll tell you all about that. Plus, we're going to talk with um, the author of a book uh, called *A Hand Up*, that provides creative blueprint for greater government progress. His name is Marty Lawrence. He's been on the show before, uh, and he's got a series of these books uh, that that revolve around uh, a couple of characters. And uh, also the former mayor who channels her inner alien. Hi, this That's is Joe Biden ahead. From
1: the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
5: Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
0: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
5: Here is some
2: more of the rich humour of Brooks Hayes of Arkansas, special assistant to the president. My grandson, a 15-year-old red-headed wise cracking high school lad um, loves to cut me down to size. This grandson was in to see me recently. He saw some books on my desk, passed over some that I had produced only two. I'm, I haven't produced them in great volume, but uh, one I and I make this reference, uh, believe me with some sense of modesty. The first book was one produced for the Baptist when I was elected president of the convention. They thought they should have a book, (laughs) and then later, the University of North Carolina asked me for a book on the Little Rock story. My uh, father was asked when this book came out, uh, Mr. Hayes, have you read Brooks' last book? He said, I hope so. (laughs) And uh, then uh, the... um, but uh, this lad uh, didn't comment on those two books. he looked at the third one, which said, "How to get and keep the job you want." He said he was four years late getting that one to you. Wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've been quite happy in this assignment. Uh, even uh, the uh, proximity to Arthur Schlesinger is enjoyable. The president put me there, I think, so if any hard questions came up, uh, Mr. <laughs> Schlesinger had me) and told someone in a, a dinner meeting, uh, someone I was with in Washington at a banquet recently, uh, just that, and he said, well, the trouble with uh, you and Arthur Schlesinger is that you're both answering questions nobody's asked, <laughs> uh, which, uh, which I submit was a thoroughly partisan comment. Uh, Well, we're at the east end of the White House, and we're easy to reach, and I hope if you're there, you'll come to see us. Uh, Someone said, Mr. Hayes, are you close to Mr. Kennedy? And I said, philosophically and politically and intellectually, yes, very close. I said, physically, uh, I'm over here on the east end. It's like the little lady said when I asked her in Pope County if she had seen Halley's Comet. She said, just from a distance. (laughs) This election year in particular, I have to be careful, there is a difference, you know. I remember one year when one of our colleagues had been through the South, and when he got back, he confronted an Alabama member with uh, this uh, comment, said, Bill, you're in trouble, I've been in your district, and Henry Wilson's announced against you. Well, he said, I'm not surprised, I know that fellow, he's a thief and a crook and a liar, he's the kind of man that would run against me. (laughs) Well, he said, I've got more bad news, said George Johnson's going to announce against you tomorrow. Well, he said, he's the same type of individual. He's a thoroughly evil person. He's lucky to be out of the penitentiary. And then he said, look, I'm just kidding you. I saw them both. Therefore, for you and sent you their regards. And, uh, uh, he, uh, uh, it, uh, uh, it produced this comment. Well, see what you've made me do. I've said some ugly things about two of the sweetest, finest men I've ever known. I remembered uh, the experience of 1933. I ran in a special election in in that year for a seat in the Congress, the one that I was to win uh, nine years later. But in 1933, the Depression year, it was a terrible year, and this is a rural district, remember... Uh, maybe you suffered, too, from the Depression, but as one of my farmer friends said, Brooks, this Depression wouldn't have been near so bad if it hadn't come along right in the middle of hard times. <laughs> and,
7: uh,
2: I, uh, I said that to a Georgia audience not long ago, and the chairman said, well, Mr. Hayes, Arkansas was not alone. Georgia had it, too. I said to... He said, uh, I asked a fellow once, do you remember 1933? He said, sure. That's the year I broke my arm. I said, uh, broke your arm? He said, yes, I was eating my breakfast and I fell out of the persimmon tree. (laughs) So, uh, uh, some of my first lessons, I should say, if you will permit me to enter this delicate area, were in this little church down in Arkansas a little congregation. And in uh, my first lessons, really, in democracy, were in that Baptist church. You non-Baptists forgive me. This is not propaganda. I uh, just happened to be a Baptist church, and I am a Baptist. I'm almost as bad as Brother Puckett, who opposed the consolidation of our church with the Christian church. He said, I'm a Baptist, and nobody's going to make a Christian out of me. <laughs> And sometimes there'd be differences over whether to buy uh, some, a new organ or not. And sometimes those are interesting discussions. I remember when they wanted to buy a new chan- uh, buy a chandelier, not a new one, but because the ladies wanted the chandelier. And the, one of the deacons said, well, now we can't do it. said, if we went to order it, we wouldn't know how to spell it. <laughs> and said... Uh, And and he said, anyway, uh, if we got one, nobody knew how to play it. (laughs) And he said, anyway, I'm telling you, I think all the deacons agree that if we're going to spend any money on anything new, we need a new light fixture. (laughs) This was another Comedy
0: Spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
1: Louis and Joplin, Missouri, and Oklahoma City looks mighty pretty. See Amarillo, Gallup, New Mexico, Flagstaff, Arizona. Don't forget one owner, Kingston, Boston, San Bernardino. Won't you get hit to this timely tip when you make that California?
2: Don't you know? Go on.
5: Go on. Get out of here.